0: Hello, and welcome to the first broadcast of The Dirt in 2018. Happy New Year. I have my fingers crossed that 2018 is going to improve upon 2017, but now that January isn't even over and we've already got a government shutdown under our belt, I'm not really holding my breath that 2018 is going to go any more smoothly than the last. That said, I am fiercely optimistic uh, because, you know, whether we're talking about securing... Clean drinking water for our kids, or protecting our youth from deportation, or pursuing justice in in all of its other forms, equality within the criminal justice system, rooting out corruption in our political infrastructure, reclaiming our most basic right to fair representation in government. The people of our state and across the nation have a lot of fights ahead of us this year, but I think we've got the fight in us for another few rounds. I have I've seen the fire in in your eyes listeners and in the eyes of people around me who are are absolutely geared up and ready to fight in 2018 and change things for the better Um, so I'm looking forward to the victories ahead of us in 2018 and I'm I'm glad that you're joining our program and listening along uh, and joining us in that fight Um, As you probably know, on this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. We're broadcasting out of historic Shaw University, WSHA-FM, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we're going to talk today about some of the environmental challenges that we're going to face in 2018. And to do that, we have two of the best environmental journalists in the state, maybe the country, um, here to discuss some of that. But I want to start the show first Um, This being the first show of the year with a story about three young activists from the Triangle who are already out there fighting for your future. We talk a great deal on our show about fights over coal ash, offshore drilling, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. We talk about the benefits wind and solar power bring to the economies of Eastern and Central North Carolina and the country as a whole. And part of the reason we talk about these fights is because of an issue that's overarching and ever-present in those conversations, and that is the disastrous human, economic, and ecological effects of climate change caused by burning coal, oil, and natural gas. We're already feeling the effects of a changing climate. Weather patterns are more extreme. Global temperatures continue to rise. The Arctic has already begun changing in fundamental and irreversible ways, But there are still a lot of folks who think that this is an issue on the horizon and fail to address it with any kind of urgency. For younger folks, the creeping realities of climate change are all they've ever known. And some of them are taking a stand. In about third or fourth
1: grade, I first learned about the issue of climate change. And I'd heard about it before, but that was the first time I really learned about it in depth. And the very first thing that surprised me about it was how severe it was, but also how Little people were actually talking about it and how little was being done because I figured that I should have been hearing about it on front page news every single week or hearing more about it from politicians and all these different places when I realized how severe this issue was. But then I just realized how much was not being talked about and how much was not being done. So I sort of took it upon myself to learn more about it first and then to really see how I could get involved. In middle school, the opportunity came up if I wanted to be a plaintiff um, or petitioner in North Carolina to reduce carbon emissions here. And I was thrilled and I was really glad to be a part of it because it felt like I was finally making a difference in my own community.
0: That was Hallie Turner. She's a student at Inlow High School here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hallie, along with two other student activists, Arya Portula and Emily Liu, have filed a petition with the Environmental Management Commission, a body of political appointees who are tasked with adopting rules related to the protection of North Carolina's air and water resources. In short, their goal is to get the EMC to adopt more stringent rules to address climate change. They're being helped along the way by the Duke Environmental Law Clinic. I'll let Duke Attorney reich Longest give a more detailed explanation of just what they hope to accomplish.
2: The the petition is aimed to accomplish getting the state of North Carolina to commit to a planning process to eliminate all sources of CO2 emissions in North Carolina um, by 2050. And that uh, is a goal that uh, if trends continue in energy production and energy use, uh, we will as a society and as an economy be moving in that direction already for a variety of other reasons, namely the, um, uh, more, uh, new energy sources, solar, particularly, uh, the price of solar coming down, um, uh, at, uh, pretty phenomenal rates. And then also the, um, uh, changes in the way in which we use and produce uh, energy um, uh, changes within the energy production sector uh, however the uh, the policies that supported that move uh, are subject to change by the general Assembly by the Utilities Commission and others uh, and there is of course a countervailing force that seeks to positively um, uh, actually uh, you know move that um, move that in the other direction, the wrong direction. So it's very important for the Environmental Management Commission to start now to um, be reviewing those those state policies and the state um, uh, contribution to carbon dioxide pollution uh, and to be aiming at a long-term goal of elimination of that pollution.
0: Howley hopes to stand up to the countervailing forces Mr. Longus mentions, namely the fossil fuel industry, its lobbyists, and the politicians in its pocket. She's joined by two fellow activists – Emily Liu is a student at East Chapel Hill High School. For Emily, climate change awareness and concern manifested at an early age.
3: When I was in elementary school, I, I was told a story by my teacher, and it was basically of this elderly grandma who was, um, like, recounting her childhood to her grandchildren, and so the setting was in the future, and her childhood was in, like, the time we are in right now. And basically... She was talking about how um, when she was little, she would go to the beach and play in the sand and she'd be outside and have fun. But in the future, they would have to pay for oxygen because uh, the ozone layer is so depleted and that if they went outside, it would get burned. And basically, I don't want that to happen. I want um, our future generations to be able to live a healthy and clean life. So that's why I'm interested in climate change
1: and climate activism.
0: Joining Hallie and Emily is Arya Portula, a student at Inlow High School with Hallie. She spoke with me about her motivations for getting involved in the climate change fight.
3: What really got me interested in environmental issues um, is that my parents have been taking uh, my brother and I to national parks. For the last 10 years so we hike one national park every year um, and we went to Glacier National Park uh, about five years ago um, and Glacier National Park originally had 150 glaciers now there are only 40 glaciers left and seeing that statistic and getting the chance to see those glaciers and, and the way they've receded over the years really drove me to try to take some kind of um, tangible steps towards Combating climate change, and um, two years ago we went up to the Canadian Rockies and hiked the Athabasca Glacier, which is one of the most accessible glaciers in the Americas, and therefore a really powerful educational tool um, for the public. But over the years, it's been receding by more than five meters each year. So we had the chance to hike on the glacier um, in a six-hour hike, and. As we hiked up the glacier, we got to see um, each year they mark how far the glacier has receded with the signpost that marks the year and and the uh, level of the glacier. So walking by all those signposts where there's not only gravel and there used to be glacier was something that kind of compounded my urgency to to work on, on, on this issue.
0: The three of them are hopeful about their chances. And for Holly, this is round two in this fight. Two years ago, she attempted to bring a similar petition before the EMC. At that time, a commissioner rejected Halley's petition, saying it was incomplete. He also added that North Carolina law prohibits environmental agencies from enacting state laws stricter than federal law. That's a reference to the infamous Hardison Amendment of the 1970s that was repealed in the 90s and then reinstated by Republicans in 2011. Halley challenged the EMC's decision back then and took the fight to court but the court ruled against her. Recklongus was involved then as well.
2: I was involved in the review process of the 2013 decision and helped um, and helped serve as uh, counsel for her when she sought review of that petition in uh, in Superior Court. And we were disappointed, obviously, that the um, Superior Court judge um, uh, uh, upheld the in that case the decision of the chair of the EMC. As we understand it, the chair of the EMC this time around has already determined. Uh, that the petition that Hallie Turner um, and that Hallie Aria and um, Emily have submitted uh, this time around, this new petition, uh, is complete. Uh, The last time around, the chair of the EMC determined that the petition was not complete. So, Uh, These three petitioners and the petition that we've um, worked on to draft up uh, with them and on their behalf has already cleared a hurdle uh, that it did not clear the last time. That is the completeness determination by the chair of the EMC.
0: Win or lose, these young activists are gaining invaluable advocacy experience. It should serve them well in what will undoubtedly be a bright, but hopefully not too hot, future.
1: Well, I'd like it if we had a chance to share our own voices and make our own voices heard more directly as young people directly towards them instead of through the petition. And obviously, I hope that they um, basically, <laughs> I hope that, it, that the rule is issued. I hope, obviously, that the EMC chooses to adopt our rule. Um, but at the very least, we hope to raise awareness about this and make our voices heard specifically as young people who
0: won't stop until we feel like we have a future that's livable basically thank you again to Arya, emily reich and hallie for sharing your story with us uh, i'll be play, paying close attention in a couple of weeks when the next chapter of the story unfolds and obviously uh, we will keep you all up to speed on what happens as well uh, which reminds me if you're listening to the dirt here on wsha in raleigh Go check out our Twitter feed. It is TheDirtFM. Give us a follow. Uh, If you missed part of the live broadcast, get on iTunes. You can find the show in podcast form on iTunes. Again, search for The Dirt. And if you don't have iTunes, check out SoundCloud.com. Uh, search for The Dirt FM on SoundCloud, and you can see our full episodes. We've got kind of little bonus segments and extra content as well on SoundCloud, so make sure you check that out. If you're driving or walking or bicycling or hang gliding around North Carolina, remember you can also listen to WSHAFM on 1021 in Rocky Mount and on 102.3 in Fayetteville. So we are broadcasting across 22 counties in North Carolina right now. Uh, make sure you check us out. I want to go back and touch on a couple of things that were mentioned in that climate change story. First, for those who are unfamiliar, there's an institution here in North Carolina called the Environmental Management Commission. And that was mentioned and that's who Hallie and her fellow activists are petitioning. Uh, It is it's a, a strange entity. It is a group of 15 politically appointed uh, members that are appointed by the governor and partly from the legislature. It was created in 1974 by the North Carolina General Assembly. It, it requires at least one physician, one health services representative, one uh, agricultural expert, one engineer with a focus in water supply or pollution control, a conservation expert, a uh, hydrologist. Um, there are three at-large members, a manufacturer, uh, lots of different categories of people who are required to sit on uh, this commission. And, again, it's responsible for making rules that protect uh, air and water resources in North Carolina. So, uh, you know, the, the members are chosen for a lot of different reasons. Obviously, there is uh, sometimes a an ideological, political tent to some of these appointments. But uh, so, the, so the actions of the, the commission change. Uh, from administration to administration when some of these when there's turnover Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was I I referenced the the Hardison amendment Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about the Hardison amendment because it's an extremely important factor that limits the ability of the Department of Environmental Quality and other regulatory agencies here in North Carolina uh, to protect the public and you know I'm going to look back at, at something that Richard Wisnett wrote in, uh, for the UNC School of Government a couple of years ago, kind of summarizing what the Hardison Amendments uh, are all about. Uh, and he wrote, North Carolina passed a series of laws in the 1970s that prevented its agencies and local governments from creating environmental regulations that were more stringent than federal regulations. Uh, so this was, they were called the Hardison Amendments, and it's named after the, the guy who was pushing them in reference to Senator Harold Hardison. Uh, who was a, a Democrat in the 1970s from Lenore. Uh, so environmentalists in the 1980s lobbied and lobbied and lobbied and finally succeeded in removing the Hardison Amendments in the mid-1980s. Um, for the next 30 years, North Carolina was a national leader among states in uh, innovative environmental regulatory approaches and Really made a lot of progress in, in doing not just what the Clean Water Act and other federal regulations wanted to achieve, but reaching higher than that, uh, being more ambitious than even what the federal government was willing to pursue. Then, uh, in the mid '90s, uh, they uh, in nineteen or, sorry in the, the mid '90s it was uh, the hardest amendments were repealed, uh, or in the mid '80s in 2011. Republicans gained a majority in both legislative chambers for the first time since 1870, and they reinstated the amendments. Uh, So they slightly altered them, but the amendments are back. And once again, they are handcuffing regulators in North Carolina. And this is important because, you know, whether we're talking about rules governing climate change uh, or any of the other environmental fights like this, this kind of just hanging in the background all of the time. And one issue that we're going to be discussing uh, quite a bit for the rest of the show today is the issue of Gen X contamination in the Cape Fear River. And it's a kind of contamination that is persistent um, through other water systems in North Carolina as well. And the the ability of the Department of Environmental Quality to regulate Gen X, to create a rule uh, that would limit how much of it you can put into the water is handcuffed by the Hardison amendments. So, uh, you know, there were over the course of the past six months or so, there have been a lot of legislative moves and maneuvers and jockeying back and forth about, well, what can government do? Should we, you know, should we invest money into DEQ, which is starved for resources? Uh, should we, should, does DEQ have the authority to make a rule, um, you know, Governing Gen X and some of these other things. Is this an emergency situation? There's a loophole within the Hardison amendments that allow for some rules to be passed immediately if it's a kind of emergency uh, situation in which a, a rule of, of limited time um, can be passed. And there are a lot of regular, or a lot of Republicans, uh, frankly, in the legislature who uh, are suggesting, well, we don't need to invest any resources in DEQ because DEQ could have been making rules and they're just not. And on the other side of things, realistically, DEQ has tried to make rules but can't. Um, they're they're handcuffed by the Hardison amendments to a certain degree. Uh, but there's a question going back and forth about whether or not that's a, a solid course of action so uh so you can certainly do further research on the hardison amendments if you want uh lisa sorg who is here in the studios with us has written extensively about the hardison amendments and obviously you can get on the google machine and search for hardison amendments north carolina and you will find more information than i'm sure you're ever willing to uh absorb that's all on that for now we are going to head to a break uh stay tuned for our next segment we are going to be talking with the panel about all kinds of different issues, and you're listening to The Dirt on WSHAFM. Welcome back. We are headed into the second segment of the show today, and I have in the studio with me Matthew Starr, Upper Noose Riverkeeper. Hello. Hey. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And Lisa Sorg, a journalist reporting for NC Policy Watch, uh, who is without question one of the best environmental reporters in the country. Lisa, Hello hello and aw shucks (laughs) (laughs) thank you both for being here um as you heard because you were sitting in here with me uh we just did a segment on climate change which is a really pertinent topic right now uh we have had one of the top three top two depending on who you
4: ask hottest years on record is that right that's right if you include the el nino i think we're number three but if you don't include the el nino we're number two it's it was warm in 2017 which
0: is weird because there was like a foot of snow on the ground like just a couple days ago of course it's now like 70 degrees outside so you know it's you can see how these things swing violently one way and the other uh but you know actually before we get into climate change speaking of the snow uh we, you know, we we talk about a lot of kind of high ideological, you know, things about broad systems of how are we going to fix this big river and all that kind of stuff, but uh, and how how are people going to do it in in the NCGA? But one thing that is really concrete that we could be doing to improve our clean water is maybe moving away from de-icer and rock salt. What what are the dangers there?
4: Well, first, you, salt. You know, you put it on your French fries, but you don't want a lot of it in your drinking water. There are certain levels above which it's not healthy for you in terms of, if you have, especially if you have high blood pressure. It's also very caustic to aquatic life, and that rock salt and de-icer goes somewhere, and it usually washes off your sidewalk and goes into the storm drain, and then on to the uh, the water, and that can harm a lot of, you know, uh, your grass, but also fish. Invertebrates.
0: And probably some particularly sensitive wildlife. Uh, We look at, you know, amphibian wildlife, which is usually particularly sensitive to uh, stressors and the environment and things that we're putting into water. And I think we'll talk about a couple of those species here in a couple minutes because there are two that are endangered and need some protection.
5: Yeah, so first of all, there was a report that came out recently from some researchers that salinity in the nation's rivers are on a rise from a number of different things. Um, definitely putting down the ice and rock salt is one of those, but there's other things like agricultural runoff. Um, it's just like, like fertilizer. If you put too much down or you, or you don't do it in an appropriate way or in an irresp- irresponsible way, well, it's going to wash off, um, and those have very re- real consequences for our streams. Some people may not know that when that stuff, that pollutant, washes off and goes into a gutter it goes into that storm drain that hole in the gutter and that doesn't go to a water treatment plant that goes directly into a stream so anything that's in that water will be in that stream and could have very well cons- very real consequences for a species like the carolina mad tom which is a just an adorable little uh catfish as well as the new River water adorable. dog yeah and and, and obviously i'm partial a dog yeah <laughs> it's It's a aquatic salamander. That's very cool. It's endemic, meaning it it only occurs in the New and Tarpan rivers, and it's a salamander, so it's a you know a little water lizard. But what's really cool about it is that the gills, how it breeds, are external. They're they're outside of its body, and there's the there are these bright red little. They look like little sticks that stick out from their neck, and again, it's just a.
0: Y'all should get your phones out and in Google yeah. image search. Uh, News River the, water dogs. The they River are water pretty. Dog.
4: It's like they have Elizabethan collars on yeah, or something, and they are the ones that are at risk from the pipeline,
0: uh, as
5: well as five the completion of five forty.
4: Well, okay.
0: <laughs> yeah,
5: there, there's a whole can of worms we could get into there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we don't have to get into that right now because I want to. I want to go back to. Twenty seventeen was super hot. Despite the snowstorm in early 2018, uh, there were some really hot counties in North Carolina.
4: What were the hottest counties? Well, there was Richmond County, which I believe was 3.4 degrees above normal. The, uh, Lee County was in was no, yeah, Lee County was in there. Scotland County, I think there were 10. Anson County, all of those were a three degrees or more above normal, which is a lot. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I I'm not sure people might not realize that just a, a degree is a lot you know we're talking about three degrees that's really substantial uh, substantially hot and dry it was dry too. dry correct? there
4: were counties I think it was Chatham and Lee in particular were 9 to 12 deg- or inches below normal and that is extremely extremely dry and most of the state now is in some form of drought either abnormally dry or in a moderate drought
0: and I think that's something that listeners probably uh, recognize as well. And we've seen fires that have probably been exacerbated by drought conditions over the last year and in the last couple of years. But, I mean, I'll just, if you're curious, I'll read through them here. We've got the 10 hottest counties in 2017, Richmond, Scotland, Warren, Moore, Franklin, Hope, Johnston, Anson, Carteret, and Washington. Uh, driest counties, Lee and Chatham were mentioned, Moore County, Harnett, Cleveland, Alamance. Richmond, Montgomery, Stanley, Randolph, and Scotland uh, were all up there in the top 10 driest counties of 2010. So these, I mean, look, you can, you can tie these on average higher temperatures and these kind of extreme drought conditions. There are connections to climate change. This isn't just some, you know, idea, oh, we're going to get warmer or whatever. Uh, it's, it's extreme weather that's what we're looking at that's connected to climate change and it is you know there's a report in the new york times that came out just earlier this month about how climate change is altering our lakes and our streams um burning fossil fuels is is contributing to this what's it doing Matthew?
5: yeah so well and you brought up an interesting point you mentioning the snow and the east coast being um really cold in the past couple of weeks but that's let's remember that climate is separate from weather and while we might have been experiencing really cold temperatures and as a southern boy no thank you but the rest of the country was still warmer than average during those times so just because we had snow doesn't mean that Climate change isn't happening, and
0: you see the President and then everybody else that are out there oh look you know it's there's snow on the ground, there's no such thing as global warming That's we call that snow trolling it's just <laughs> uh yeah it's it's every single time you yeah. hear that it happens it's just not it has no relation to the reality of the science um behind what's yeah what's happening
5: and, and as you said, climate change is it's not just warming it's it's leading and causing more severe weather events so the snowstorms could potentially be more severe the hurricanes potentially more severe it's, it's it's altering the severity of which we experience different things such as snowfall hurricanes droughts and and temperature
0: change and and one other factors that scientists have been measuring you know we think about we're burning these fossil fuels we're releasing carbon dioxide into the air it's trapping heat et cetera. Et cetera but it's also getting into our water uh, scientists have been measuring carbon dioxide um in uh in the ocean in seawater and over the past three decades they've documented a steady rise of carbon dioxide in the seawater which that can harm marine life in a variety of different ways. So, you know, we think we have a grasp on what this is doing, and we still don't even have a clue as to all of the different ways in which climate change is going to change the world that we're living in. Uh, You know, we need to really, really, really be paying attention to this and, and doing what we can to address it now. Uh, Part of that could have been the Paris Climate Agreement. And, you know, to Governor Cooper's credit, he he's uh, expressed a desire for North Carolina to remain committed to those goals. Uh, we'll see where we go as, as far as that's concerned. One thing that is now on the table as far as fossil fuels go offshore drilling. Oh, yeah. And the, the Trump administration has come up with an offshore drilling plan. That opens up drilling everywhere. Well, originally the plan was we're going to open up drilling everywhere. Uh, That has since been corrected to mean everywhere except for the state in which the president's resort of choice is located, Mar-a-Lago. So Florida is off the table. Governor Cooper would like to see North Carolina off the table. The the on-the-record justification for the decision to remove Florida was, well, they rely a lot on tourism. I don't know if y'all have ever been to North Carolina, but we have a lot of tourists our way, too. Um, what is
4: it, a $3 billion industry per year on the coast here?
0: Yeah, it is. And, you know, if you look at the coastal communities and the local business community along the coast, they are almost entirely uniformly against the idea of drilling off of their coasts. They don't want to see it. You know, it. why should the federal government come in and usurp the the power and desires and wills of the local communities along the coast. It's ridiculous. And and for people who don't know, specifically, North Carolina waters extend three, only three miles. Uh, so when we're talking about drilling that could come in, we're talking about only three miles from the shore. That is not very far at all. Uh, so a disastrous oil spill, for example, would would have a very, very quick and immediate impact on the coasts and on the economies.
4: And you uh, could see the rigs on a clear day. You can yeah. see a rig forever.
5: And and Brian, as as we've talked about before, this isn't offshore drilling gives this kind of misnomer that. It's out of sight, out of mind. You mentioned three miles, and you said something to me before that that really resonated. This is ocean front drilling. This is this is drilling.
0: Right. That, I don't I don't like calling it offshore no. drilling. I like calling it beachfront. What drilling. it is? Yeah. Because yes. that's what it is. You're right. You know the oil rigs are enjoying the beaches on the other side just as much as you are on your side, mm-hmm. except for they're doing it in a much more dirty way.
4: Well, and then there's the whole seismic testing.
0: Exactly. Which
4: really harms the sea life. Can you tell I like sea life?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We talked about we talked about seismic testing on this show a while back and uh it's worth getting on iTunes and revisiting that episode if you haven't already. But it yeah, that's that's kind of the first step to any drilling is to go out and blast sonic waves down into the ground to figure out where you're gonna drill and as you can imagine, if somebody came up to you with a giant stereo and was blasting it in your face for hours on end, it is extremely disruptive to uh, mammals, to life, to large mammals, and, and apparently, according to new studies, to plankton, which is kind of the building block of the entire marine ecosystem. So so we've got the drilling thing. Uh, we've got the climate change affecting our, our lakes.
5: Our freshwater, not just our, our seawater.
0: You're right. Uh, and we've got some vulnerable species that we need to take care of. What what else do we have coming down the pipe? What other fights are there to be had um, with regard to the environment in North Carolina in 2018? What are the policy debates we should be looking for?
4: Well, I'd say the Gen X appropriations is a big deal. Uh, one thing I'm working on right now, which I hope to have done tomorrow, is... Uh, Senator Phil Berger, after the Senate refused to vote on the, uh, on House Bill 189, which would have given DEQ some money, including $1 million for this very high-end piece of equipment that can monitor all these emerging contaminants that, you know, are really hard to detect.
0: The high-res mass A spectrometer. spectrometer. Yes. yes.
4: Well, Phil Berger says, well, DEQ has access to that equipment for free. I have called now five universities... Private and public, and I have yet to find anyone who says, "Yeah, free, come on in." <laughs> so I, I have no evidence, and I've asked via email the senator what his source of that information is, and so far I have not heard back. Hmm. So I don't think it's free.
5: Yeah, I mean, a high-res mass spectrometer sounds really fancy because it is. It's a you know, think about this as a Ferrari of scientific equipment. Um I'm, I'm not just You wouldn't l- just let somebody exactly. drive a Ferrari for exactly. free. Why not? <laughs> what about me? Yeah, a little bit of risk involved there. So it's a you know the so, funding is very important.
0: Yeah, and let's let's talk about that the the Gen X bill. Uh, because we're actually currently in the middle of a, another special session. Uh, it's kind of a running joke on this show because it's special session, session after special session, after special session, which is really hard to say over and over and over again. So I wish they would just stop, stop holding them so I wouldn't have to try to do that. Uh, I can, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know what number we're at six, something like that. I, but, but we're in the middle of one right now. There's skeleton sessions taking place, uh, it, one thing has, environmentally related, has been introduced on one chamber. What is it related to Gen X? What are the details of that bill? Yeah,
5: so, the House. So as Lisa mentioned, um, Senator Berger was responding to a bill that was passed unanimously in the House. And and that bill started the framework to look at Gen X. And the most important part of that bill was that it, it – GAVE JUST ABOUT $3 MILLION TO DEQ FOR RESOURCES THEY DESPERATELY NEED THAT THE SAME GENERAL ASSEMBLY, the, THESE SAME LEGISLATORS HAVE CONTINUOUSLY CUT MONEY OUT OF THEIR BUDGET SO THEY'RE NOT ABLE TO DEAL WITH THESE PROBLEMS. BUT SO IT WOULD, IT'S, its YOU KNOW, THINK ABOUT IT AS THE CRAWL, WALK, RUN, SPRINT PHASE. We, we're, WE'RE IN the, THE TODDLERS BARELY LEARNING HOW TO CRAWL and that's the first step that needed to happen and as i mentioned it was passed however before it was even passed the senate adjourned uh they went home they they went home without a, ever hearing the bill bill let alone taking a vote on it um so call your senator tell them this is important tell them to do something real
0: do either of you have a sense of whether or not when the house passed this bill they had any Expectation that the Senate would ever take it up?
4: Well, when I was listening to the River Quality Committee, Ted Davis said he was going to you know, include the Senate in, you know, here's the draft. But reading between the lines, he would say things like, well, I have no idea what the Senate's going to do. And that made me think that he probably was skeptical. So I also think that this is not just for Gen X, though. It's emerging contaminants statewide. So if Correct. you live in the mountains, you should, you know, it's just as important to you because you don't know what's in the French broad.
0: Right, right. And we're talking about, yeah, chemical dumping. It's 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 everywhere. We're just beginning to... It's not just a Wilmington
5: problem. It's a statewide problem.
0: Right. And deserves a statewide response. And Correct. What, we, what we've seen from a lot of these folks is... is I mean, and, and the
5: Gen X problem in Wilmington is not just affecting one county. It's affecting three. And, you know, appropriately funding DEQ to handle this in a holistic way or or to start to try to grasp how to handle this in a holistic way... Is the step that needs to be taken, but the Senate. I was going to say, is, is that
0: is that what you think the answer is? It's just money for DEQ, is that?
4: And plus oversight. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with demanding to see where the money goes, and I personally would like to see where the money goes to make sure that it's spent correctly. But at the same time, you can't you can't do this with nothing.
0: So as. Listeners, Mary and I know there is uh, the Clean Water Act requires certain discharges of certain pollutants to uh, adhere to an, an NPDES permit in North Carolina, and it's the Department of Environmental Quality that is tasked with reviewing, approving, approving, managing all these NPDES permits. And uh, the the Gen X contamination was was one of these. There's a huge backlog of these permits, and. DEQ could probably use some resources to try to get a handle on that. That would be one step here. Okay, we're out of time. we got to head to a break. When we come back, we're going to be hopefully talking to Adam Wagner from the Wilmington Star News Gatehouse Media uh, to talk a little bit more about Gen X. There's a lot to say. So thank you, uh, Lisa and Matthew, for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is WSHA. Welcome back to The Dirt. We are headed into our final segment of the show today. Thank you for joining us. We have on the line environmental journalist Adam Wagner. You can find his work in the Wilmington Star News and other pro, other other publications across Eastern North Carolina. Adam, welcome back to the show.
6: Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me.
0: So, when we had you on the show last, it was back in the back in the summer of last year. Uh, Your team had broken some stories about the contaminant Gen X, which was discovered in the finished drinking water of tens, hundreds of thousands of people in the Wilmington area. Uh, You reported that the Cape Fear Public Utility had known about the Gen X contamination for quite a while without disclosing it to its customers or the public. Uh, And you reported that the source of the Gen X contamination was an industrial site upstream on the Cape Fear uh, close to Fayetteville. Uh, Specifically, the primary source of the chemical dumping appeared to be from a plant owned by Chemorse, which is a company that the industrial chemical giant DuPont spun off just before beginning the process of merging with Dow Chemical. So as a reminder to folks, uh, Gen X is a chemical used to make Teflon, uh, water-resistant textiles, plastics, all kinds of stuff. It is part of a group of fluorochemicals. Uh, that is related to a uh, compound called C8, which has been shown to cause cancer in humans and which was manufactured and dumped by DuPont for um, decades. And I, I don't I think there are some health studies beginning related to Gen X, but its effects on human health aren't really known yet. It has been shown in at least one study to cause cancer and other uh, issues in animals. So just I just wanted to give. Listeners, a kind of a, a background overview in case they have not been caught up on the issue. Uh, you recently published a piece, just kind of do it like creating an outline of of what has happened since this saga began, and I'm I'm hoping you can just kind of take us through that. Uh, what is where do things stand right now as far as this issue goes? Yeah. So, so one
6: of the things that we sort of saw happen with Gen X was that. Anyone or any government agency that had been impacted on it began to try to figure out what should we have, to, what should we do? So you saw DEQ step in and, and ultimately end up, um, they and the attorney general ended up suing Comores and that ended up with the settlement in September that um, where Comores agreed to eventually sort of turn off the Navy and Gen X um, discharges.
0: Navion so, being another... Piece, being another...
6: Yet another chemical. Okay. Yeah, sort of a byproduct of another process that was getting in the river that, that we also don't know anything really... We know even less about than we know about Gen x Which um, is scary. Which is kind of saying something. Yeah. So in the piece that Vaughn and I published last week, we found that, that Camor's had severed that pipe and there are no discharges... No new discharges coming into the river. Um, Gen X still has and has for months been showing up at the sort of first levels in the river. And by that, I mean well below often the 140 parts per trillion health goal that was set by, by DHHS, um, which is pretty small. And
0: that's so we don't ever know.
6: We don't know what the event is.
0: So we're not sure where that's coming from precisely.
6: The health goal or the...
0: the you said you said that it was showing up in trace amounts still? Is that correct? Uh, yeah,
6: yeah. So there's been some thought that maybe when you have a fluorochemical, they don't really go away. And this was the problem we saw with CA was that it sort of lingered in humans for, for years um, to really detrimental and kind of scary effects. Gen X doesn't appear to linger in humans as long as C-8 does, but it might linger in things like the Cape Fear River bed. Um, things There's been a lot of concern about whether or not it's in fish in the Cape Fear River. So one of the things that UNCW was tasked with as part of that HB-56 appropriation that they received um, was to look at some of those, things. they received sort of a, a vague order to go research some of the, some of this stuff. Um, this is, I think maybe I think they would look at sediment in particular, that sort makes, of nail down whether,
0: yeah, yeah, it makes it makes sense because I mean, what we do know about about this compound or compounds like it is that it doesn't break down. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of it. Uh, you know, when you are mm-hmm. putting something on Teflon or you are creating a you know water resistant clothes and things like that, the whole point is to have something tough that doesn't. The water doesn't affect so of course it's not going to get diluted and it's not going to break down in nature it's not a surprise to me that it's uh that it's lingering i'll be interested in yeah. seeing w- what they find uh with regard to the the riverbed for sure what mm-hmm. so so they they've shut up literally shut off the valve cut the pipe as you say severed the pipe it
6: sounds like they literally started off yeah,
0: yeah that's <laughs> that's amazing uh yeah. but I mean, from it's my understanding that Gen X is, is making its way into water other ways than just that pipe uh, and in other ways in not just liquid form. Is that right?
6: Yeah. So one of the things that the EU discovered was they were getting, they sort of tested wells around the plant. And they were testing, they were getting hits upstream of the moors. And obviously, water doesn't flow upstream, so it wasn't coming that way. So, what they sort of settled on was that it was likely through the air emissions, and we really don't know that much about how much Gen X has been emitted through the air. And there really hasn't been any sense testing on it. We don't, you know, we don't know what the impacts of that are. So, they've been talking for a couple months now about getting some kind of monitoring system into the the emission stacks
0: at that, that Fayetteville works facility um, or Gen X coming from. Yeah. One of the, one of the most striking things about this entire saga is just how much we don't know and how much we lack the infrastructure um, to be put in place to know, to, to find those things out much less actually, you know, take concrete steps to, to correct or clean or whatever you need to do. But we don't, you know um, there's so much that we don't know and that, it's a fight just to to get people to be on board with learning what we don't know, uh, which is striking to me. Uh, so Kimor's uh, their permit, they want to renew its discharge permit. Is that correct? What is that going to happen?
6: It's really unclear if it's going to happen. Um, what is pretty clear is that, that Michael Regan, the secretary of the EU came out and said, anything that we do will have a, a specific denial of of gen x discharges so that'll be written into the permit um which is pretty strong progress it's also unclear though that if they have any kind of renewal hearing in wilmington um traditionally they have a hearing in the county where the plant is based so in this case bladen county but as we saw from from the canapi report that really sort of First, widely exposed to this, um, there are a lot more impacted people downstream than there are in Bladen County.
0: Right.
6: So there's a lot of interest in the Wilmington area to to speak at a public hearing or to to you know have their voices considered during that renewal process. It's unclear if that'll be
0: taken up. So there are. Issues of – I'm looking through some of the other issues that, that you've laid out here. Uh, filtering emerging contaminants, these kind of fluorochemicals, uh, out of drinking water, is that happening? I mean, is there – we know that the valve has been shut off and there's there's no longer Gen X going into the water. Is there Gen X in drinking water still uh, and, you know – if it were to be turned back on or there was we found these things from somewhere else or we found this in another river, what can people do? Is there anything any filtration system or anything like that could that could be implemented to to get this stuff out of their drinking water?
6: Yeah, so there are still amounts of Gen X in the drinking water at at it's been hovering between like forty and seventy parts per trillion for the most part um, according to the testing with CFUA has been putting out for months now. As far as what a consumer can do, the the method that, that Dr. Knappi has been saying is most effective is install a reverse osmosis unit. Um, of course, when you talk about installing a reverse osmosis unit under your sink, we get into issues of environmental justice as far as who can afford it. You cannot afford to, to go out and just purchase an under-sink reverse osmosis unit, keep it maintained. Um,
0: it sounds expensive.
6: The, it's, yeah, thousands of dollars. I think it's between like $2,000 $5,000. Um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. The CFUA, meanwhile, is trying to figure out what they can do on a utility level. And they received some money in HB 56 as well um, to continue these this test of their facility. And so they've been doing this granular activated carbon testing and then this um ion carbon i think is testing and trying to nail down what's what's the most effective what should we be doing in the long term to try to keep these chemicals out of our water and they're they finished one stage of that they're moving into another stage meanwhile in brunswick county that county just appropriated six hundred thousand dollars um last week to do tests at their own facility so they're supposed to also receive some input from the CFOA testing, but it's a different kind of water treatment facility. So they're trying to figure out, you know, what, what should we do moving forward? And, and just,
0: and just it's, to, it's really, no, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry.
6: They've, and the other thing is that all of these governments have either filed suit against Camorras or, or announced the intention to file suit against Camorras. Um, I don't think Pender has, but, but CFOA has, and, Brunswick has to be safe hired an attorney to do it. So they seem to be, be somewhat optimistic that in the long run they're going to try to get their, their costs back in
0: And there are some class action lawsuits filed against Kim and DuPont as well. Is that right?
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, the one that sort of caught my eye was one that was focused on, I think we talked about it last time, was... Focused on water heaters in the Leland area, which is in northern Brunswick County. And it basically said that that Gen X has attached itself to this microfilm, kind of, for lack of a better word, gook that builds up on the pipes um, in your house over time and was sort of leaching into the drinking water, even though there had been no more discharges for at that point when it was tested months. So the question is really should Camorras be paying to replace? My water heater and the piping in my house, which is, you know, when when you take it from one homeowner to the entire Cape Fear region, that's a pretty high bar,
0: right? Um, And
6: there are that's just being in the grind through.
0: Well, there are leaders in the in the North Carolina General Assembly who might argue, yes, they should pay for it. Is is Senator Berger sincere when he suggests that? Kim Ors should be paying for Gen X cleanup and mitigation. What's the what's the I
6: can't speak to Senator Berger's sincerity. So so looking at, at that part of the bill, one of the things that we do know and weirdly enough, it came out in this sort of late night Twitter exchange between Darren Jackson and Chuck McGrady. Um, both sort of Jackson's office, a prominent Democrat, McGrady's a prominent Republican, who has some environmental background. Um, but Jackson said, look, we had this amendment that would have been the, a polluter pays amendment. And House leadership didn't even let it get attached to the bill, which ultimately didn't get heard in the Senate. though not passed the House unanimously. So Jackson is saying, if the Senate, if we knew the Senate wasn't even going to hear this, why didn't we just put it in and try to get it through and, and start trying to show that we're trying to do this? Um, which might speak to where Republicans are on on polluter
0: pays legislation yeah that, I mean that that makes a certain kind of sense uh so there is uh two point three million dollars in say I, you know and I, we were talking about h fifty six I want to go back to that really quickly just to to get mm-hmm. um, listeners up to speed because we're talking about two different Gen X bills here, one is law uh and one is. This $2 million bill that's never, that the Senate is ignoring. But wh- exactly what did 56 do and, and, and it got some money for somebody? Who's that for?
6: Yeah, so it got, I think ultimately is a $430,000 that was split between UNCW and CFPUA. Um, and they were each given these, these specific outlines of what they can do with the money. UNCW has researched this emerging contaminant research on the effects of it CFPA, it was keep monitoring for it and figure out what a filtration system that might be effective for this looks like um, there are some other smaller pieces of that but that testing is really still sort of ongoing in both cases um, we were supposed to get a report from cfua on april 1st they've been putting out these interim reports that basically say we're still doing this We're sort of technical grinding through this right now um, HB 189 was came from the House River water Quality Committee which both the house and the Senate set up these committees shortly after kind of sort of blossomed into a statewide issue statewide water quality issue and Ted Davis who's a representative in Hanover County um, who is the leadership of this
0: Sorry, you said you mentioned that it's a statewide issue, and I'm just wondering if any of these legislators are actively investigating rivers that are not the Cape Fear River or, you know, the lower part of the Cape Fear River. Is DEQ testing other rivers? Who is looking for this in other rivers since since the scientific community seems pretty certain that these kinds of fluorochemicals exist everywhere else as well? So
6: we know that that Lee Ferguson founded in in the Cary area. Um, he's a, a professor at Duke and he certainly located the levels of it and I think it was maybe some c eight I don't think I probably reporting exactly on it but but they're just looking for it d u doesn't seem to be looking for it in in other river basins but when I say it's a statewide issue i mean it's it's really a a question of water quality and of these emerging contaminants not necessarily just a Gen X issue right um, there's other industry out there there's other people putting things into the river that that are these sort of mashup chemicals that we seem to be seeing with Gen X um, that don't have a kind of sexy name like Gen X that, that maybe could be dangerous. They haven't been
0: studied. One to four dioxin be in the water. Dioxin being one yeah. of them. Um, okay. Well, uh, we've got to close out the show, but Adam, thank you again for being here and getting us up to speed on this issue. Uh, everyone can uh, check out your work on um, the Wilmington Star News website and in all the other papers that pick up GateHouse Media content. Uh, I really appreciate all of the work that you've been putting into this. It's been it's been extremely helpful in driving this conversation forward and, and helping um, raise awareness about this new or not new but little understood kind of contamination uh, that's been taking place in our in our waters for decades so thanks adam Uh, we have got to close the show for today so i want to thank you all for listening check out the dirt fm on twitter and have a great one